G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is our preliminary final review edition. Our grand finalists are set, Geelong playing Richmond, the first all-Victorian grand final since 2011. And it will be played, of all places, in Brisbane. And six months ago, saying that, would have uh, made everyone go, what the hell? But we've got used to it in this uh, coronavirus-infected world in which we live. The fact we've had a season at all is something we're very thankful for. And uh, hopefully it's going to be capped off in fine style with what shapes as potentially one of the great grand finals. As I say, a very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? Yeah, well... it does shape as a fantastic grand final. I do hope that the people of South East Queensland that are looking forward to a grand final aren't too disappointed that their team, the Brisbane Lions, aren't there because they should still be flocking to the Gabba to watch what could be, you know, one of the great grand finals. We've got so many subplots, don't we, with retiring champions on the Geelong side and Richmond you know, touching greatness. We've got two superstars of the game, Martin and Dangerfield, with different stories. Dangerfield, his first ever grand final at any level. And Dustin Martin, the now almost, um, well, we've had that discussion and the discussion will continue. We see the greatest finals player of all time looking to become the first ever player to win three Norm Smith medals. So, so many reasons to get to the Gabba and so many reasons to turn on the TV. For some, Rowan, and I know not you necessarily, not the least of which is the first ever night grand final. Yeah, not happy about that. I'm not happy about not being there. Uh, this year would have been my 50th grand final in a row. And I've uh, I've been cruelly cut one short of the half century. And I'm, I'm spewing, to be honest. But uh, look, it's going to be a great game. I think you make a good point too about the beaten preliminary finals you know there are some times when sides lose preliminaries and you think well that's it for them well that's certainly not the case with Port Adelaide and Brisbane they are two sides very much on the up and uh, for Lions and Power supporters fear not we are having a good look at your clubs in season reviews after we get through our uh, wraparound our look at the two preliminary finals uh, I'll tell you what else I'd love to be looking at forensically right at this very moment, Finey. It's a hamburger. <laughs> uh, the investigation would come up with the perfect, the perfect crime. What is the crime? The crime of, of, of forcing me to draw. Uh, you've picked really the wrong time to say hamburger because I've, People may calculate this. We are about lunchtime recording here. I'm yet to eat. 
and an Andrews hamburger would, under the microscope, pass the the sternest test for quality. But it's not until you put it in your mouth and chuck the microscope away that you get the beauty of an Andrews hamburger. It's an award winner. It's at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. You know what, Rowan? What? I travel across country to get this. You talk about 50 grand finals. And I feel for you, that that is a great milestone that you're missing out on. Well, imagine all the people missing out on Andrew's hamburgers and hopefully as restrictions ease, they'll be able to get their hands around the best burger in town. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I think Andrew's hamburgers, I, I immediately think Pavlovian response with the drooling. It's a little-known fact, Finey, that uh, Pavlov's dog, of course, that uh, well-known figure in scientific uh, experimental history, Pavlov's dog was actually made to drool not by pet food but by the placing of a juicy, succulent Andrew's hamburger beneath his chops. And uh, this is a little-known fact in scientific history, but I think it's one we should uh, mention now because that's how good those hamburgers are. And I'll tell you what else, Finey that this is a lesser-known phenomenon, but I've actually been known to start drooling when I see a beautiful home renovation. And there's only one place and one firm that makes me do it. And that's why you're banned from house inspections and walkthroughs, because you dribble. I thought Pavlov's dogs, as much as they would love an Andrew's hamburgers, probably ate Pavlova. But then again, I could be wrong. You're talking about great rebuilds. You're talking about West Point Properties. Nick Bartels is a master builder. And must be pretty exciting around there because it's a building company with a huge football flavour. Uh, he's had budding builders, Matt McGuire and Luke Ball, on the tools. And Luke Ball, a premiership player with the prize. Matt McGuire, of course, both a saint and a lion. And he'd be pretty proud of both those clubs. And, of course... He's built houses for the recently retired Mike Sheehan, or soon to be retired, actually, Mike Sheehan, Dyson Heppel, and Premiership star, another Norm Smith medalist, Scott Pendlebury. So we're talking about football elite. How about you get the elite builders onto your next rebuild or house build? West Point Properties, Nick Spartel. Yeah, spot on. And it is true. I have been banned from uh, Nick Spartel's renovated properties. Like I said, I've got a hobo living out the back here in a corrugated iron shed, but he had the concrete floor heated with the uh, Spartel's boys famous, um, uh, what what do you call them, Uh, floor covering heating elements. Uh, But unfortunately, my drooling was uh, threatening to electrocute everyone. So no Nick Spartel's heated floors for me, unfortunately, until I learned to curb that response. Um, Geez, our plugs are getting weirder and weirder by the week, just as well as season's about to finish. All right, uh, we've got a lot to talk about, and uh, we're going to start off with some newsy elements out of the weekend's games, and of course, looking forward to the biggest game of them all next Saturday. On Footyology Newsfeed. The big one, Saturday, the 24th of October, 7.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time, 6.30pm 
in Brisbane local time. Of course, they still don't have daylight saving up there. What a game it promises to be. And uh, look, like we said, commiserations to Port Adelaide and Brisbane, Port particularly having led the ladder all season. But I don't think anyone can deny, Fanny, that these two teams are very deserving of a playoff for a premiership. And uh, potentially, fingers crossed, this could be one of the great grand finals. Is that how you see it? Rowan, I, I think really when we understood the nature of hub life, the lockdown situation in Victoria, the need for Victorian teams to get out of the state quickly and regroup a long way from home, no home ground, home state advantage after round three or from round three onwards. Uh, I didn't like the chances of Victorian teams this season. Well, we're going to have a Victorian team win the flag. The performances of Richmond and Geelong have been stellar. As you said, Port Adelaide uh, was the standard bearer. First team since 2000 to lead the home and away season, top of the ladder from go to woe. Unfortunately for them, it hasn't had a happy ending like 2000 had for your Bombers. But nobody can deny, especially given Geelong's sustained period, of success since 2008 and really uh, you're talking about Richmond the best team of the current well not era but you know on the crest of greatness playing in their third grand final in four years nobody can deny we've got two wonderful teams two great teams in the grand final and two very historic teams of course Uh, Geelong a foundation member of the VFL uh, Richmond entering the competition in uh, 1908, or was it 09? I always get mixed 08. up. 08. Uh, a storied history between these two clubs. I've got a few numbers for you, just of interest. They have played each other 197 times. Geelong have won 104 of them. Richmond have won 90, and there have been three draws. Now, here's a lopsided stat. Finals, they have played 11. Richmond have won nine of those 11 finals. The two exceptions being Geelong's win in the 1931 grand final and their smashing of Richmond in the 1995 preliminary final. Two grand finals, that one I mentioned, 1931, Geelong prevailed by 20 points. And of course, the epic, acknowledged as one of the great grand finals of all time, 1967 with the Tigers getting up in that one by nine points. Uh, Their most recent finals clashes, of course, last year's preliminary final, a game that the Tigers won by 19 points, but uh, one the Cats gave them a real scare in. They were ahead by 21 points at halftime of that game. And previous to that, 2017, uh, Richmond, bit of a demolition job on the uh, Cats on their way to that incredible flag. They defeated Geelong in that game by 51 points. Richmond has won five of the last six meetings. I think that's a pretty pertinent stat. Franking that run of dominance with a convincing win by 26 points in round 17, the penultimate home and away round this year, a game in which they held the Cats, the AFL's highest scoring team, to a paltry one goal five come three-quarter time of that clash. That was amazing. 
So Richmond definitely been dominant of in this matchup of late. However, uh, not always the case. In fact, absolutely not always the case. Geelong, between rounds nine, 2001, and round 21 of 2017, won 20 of 21 clashes against the Tigers. The one exception being a real upset in the final round of 2006 down at the Cattery. They had another run of similar dominance uh, between round 21 of 1986 and round five of 1996, where they won 17 of 18 clashes. So the Tigers dominant of late, the head-to-head score, not a heap of difference, Richmond 90, Geelong 104, but those two protracted runs of Geelong dominance having a lot to do with that. Richmond has certainly had the wood over the Cats in recent times, Finey. Well, a comprehensive look at the history of those two teams, but for me, the real um, interesting fact has been that recent dominance by Richmond over Geelong. Though, would you agree with me and say that the MCG has played a big part in that? Certainly, you know, that that final, you think of the way Richmond have played all finals at the MCG and their wins over them in finals at the MCG. And I just get a sense that that, well, we know that that advantage doesn't exist because it's at the Gabba, but I think the MCG has played a big part in Richmond being able to not only Geelong, but really have a hold on most teams in recent years. What what do you think about Brisbane and the fact that it's at the Gabba, I should say, being a balancing out that like that recent domination and almost almost blanking it out actually? Oh, I think that's a really good point. In fact, looking at that recent history, so I said Richmond have won five of the last six. Well, um, five of those last six games have actually been at the MCG. Uh, that round 17 meeting recently, that was the first game between them not to have been played at the MCG since late 2017. And then there were four meetings prior to that, which were also at the MCG. So it's definitely a ground we know Richmond love. Uh, Geelong, I think Geelong have been better on it of late than they were, but still not necessarily a favourite venue of theirs. So they will definitely be happier for having this game at the Gabba, I think. The, I guess, balancing that out, even though Richmond did lose to Brisbane at the Gabba, what a great record they've got at that ground, of course. Even prior to their power run, you could say the power surge that started in 2017, you've got a side that just couldn't lose at the Gabba for a decade almost. No, well, uh, more than a decade. In fact, they won 11 games straight at the Gabba between 2005 wow. and that qualifying final defeat. So a 15-year stretch of 11 wins in a row until Brisbane beat them in that qualifying final. Definitely a ground they rate. Yeah, so some interesting uh, prehistory. But you know what, Rowan? especially in grand finals, as they also say at the old Max Review, precedent doesn't count for anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I mean, Geelong's record at the Gabba is none too shabby either. I mean, they've won 
including last night, they have now won uh, five in a row. They have won eight out of the last nine and they have won 11 out of their last 13 visits to the ground. So it's a ground that both sides are familiar with and play really well. Um, do you can see I this? Ask you, can I ask you one thing? Yeah. And that is, we saw it a bit last night and certainly on the commentary, they definitely made a comment about it early on in the game in particular, but I think it did come to play through the night. We're talking about a game that is starting 6.30 local time, but there seemed to be some dew on the ground. Does that favour one side or the other? Uh, I suspect it would favour Richmond. I think Richmond's one of the best wet weather teams that I've seen. Um, and uh, it's big partly because of the style of game they play. Uh, on the other, uh, not on the other hand, but I also think Geelong are pretty decent in the wet too. Uh, they they tend to play more of a possession game, which you could argue isn't uh, or is going to be hurt more by wet, dewy conditions. However, they are a physically strong team that is very good in the contest and very good from stoppages as well. So um, I think I might just lean towards Richmond being favoured by the wet more um, due wet. Uh, I, th I think that might be more of a, a benefit to them. But I, I just wonder, look, I'm no... I'm not that familiar with Brisbane weather, but you'd think, wouldn't you, the earlier in the evening, the less likelihood that dew will be a factor. Well, you'd think so, but I'm just going on last, the game that was played, well, last night our time, but of course I'm talking about the final between Geelong and Brisbane, and that started roughly at the same time, 7.40 Melbourne time, and they did comment that it was a little bit dewy. But again... They seem to be perfectly good ball handling skills throughout the game. So I think that at, at the pointy end of a football season is maybe being a little bit uh, finickety, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, no, I tend to agree. All right. Uh, look, did, I, hey, did I just create a word combining finicky and persnickety? If so, yeah. it's a great word and it should exist. Yeah, yeah. I just I didn't want to embarrass you by bringing it up, but uh, fortunately, you did to embarrass yourself. No, I agree. It's a good it's a good word, and we should try and sneak it into the vernacular more often. Um, all right, we'll have a full uh, and uh, forensically detailed look at the grand final in our Thursday podcast. But that's just to sort of get you in the mood, so to speak, a little hors d'oeuvre or horse duvers if you like, um, before the entree as entrees and the main course. There is another, um, I won't call it an elephant in the room because I think the elephant has been well and truly let out of the room, Finey. We talked about this last night in Footyology Final Siren, but I think I suspect it's going to be a discussion point early in this new week. It is about the pre-finals buy and its impact on the integrity of the premiership team. I'll try and encapsulate my argument briefly. Look, I, I have no problem with Geelong and Richmond playing off in the grand final. They're two great sides. Um, definitely deserve to be there. Uh, I think they're, you know, you don't look at either of the preliminary final results and think, oh, gee, that's a major turn up. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. However, I think it's pretty increasingly difficult to argue that the pre-finals buy hasn't had a huge impact on who wins the premiership and the road that is taken to the premiership. And the obvious 
cause for that alarm are the following two statistics. They are that prior to the introduction of the pre-finals by in 2016, 17 of the previous 18 preliminary finals over a nine-year period had been won by sides which had won their qualifying final, had a week off, and come up in the preliminary final against sides that had played right through the home and away season, gone straight into a final, and had already played two finals to get to the preliminary final. 17 out of 18. That is a pretty strong statistical trend. Now, that has been absolutely turned on its head since the introduction of the pre-finals by. We have now had 10 preliminary finals since then. Only four of those 10 preliminary finals have been won by teams which won the qualifying final. Why the stark turnaround? Well, I would argue very strongly that we're seeing teams that get to the preliminary final underdone because they have had the so-called benefit of an extra week off. Meaning, sides now who win their qualifying final, you throw in the pre-finals by, they play their qualifying final, win that, they then have another week off before playing their preliminary final. So qualifying final winners now go into their preliminary finals having played just one game in a block of somewhere between 25 to 27, 28 days. In fact, I think in Collingwood's case last year, it might have even been 29 days. That is far too little football after a season of week-in, week-out games. And I would argue, particularly this year, where games have been condensed into a very short period. What's the problem with that, you say? Well, the week off pre-finals might freshen up teams to that first week of finals. Maybe it's given us some better, more evenly matched finals. But I think more than rewarding the bottom half of the eight too much, I think the stronger argument is it effectively penalises sides that finish in the top four and then are good enough to win their qualifying final. Four out of 10 is a massive change to 17 out of 18. Now, the two losers this year who won the qualifying finals, they weren't caught on the hop. Brisbane and Port Adelaide were competitive right throughout these games and were a chance to win. It's not as stark an example as when, for instance, Geelong conceded seven goals to nothing in the first quarter against Sydney in 2016. Or Richmond kicked only two goals in the first half against Collingwood in the 2018 preliminary final. Or Collingwood last year kicked only three goals in three quarters against GWS before belatedly waking up and nearly winning the game. They are the starkest examples. However, I think there's enough evidence to suggest even Port and Brisbane were just that important degree off their best form. And was that contributed to by not playing enough football over that three and a half, four week period? I would argue strongly, yes. I look at those figures, Finey, and I say, that is too big a turnaround to be ignored. Now, think what you like, but I think the AFL, which has already incidentally, according to Gil McLaughlin, committed itself to retaining the pre-finals by, I think that is a very, very dangerous position to affix yourself to without looking at these examples, forensically investigating why this is happening. And I'm talking about talk to the fitness people at the clubs. Are they noticing that it's harder to keep the sides cherry ripe? 
for their preliminary finals. Talk to the football departments. Don't just at a summary meeting of CEOs get them to raise their hand and say, do you like the buy or not? That's not good enough because this is impacting on who and wins the premiership each year and how they win it. And I don't think without investigating it, we should just commit to retaining the pre-finals buy. What do you think? I agree. I think your statistical um, evidence is now, there's enough of a sample, is now authentic enough to make a valid case, which you are clearly putting. It doesn't also, and you, you are not doing anything more than providing the statistics. Now, people might say 17 out of 18, that was an imbalance that needed to be addressed. I couldn't disagree more. We know that, for example, soccer competitions around the world, bar Australia, in fact, don't have final series to determine their champions because probably the fairest way, even though in those competitions teams play each other twice, is at the end of uh, home and away matches, who's the best team? We don't do that. We never have. Fair enough but we must afford the right advantage to the team that is on top of the ladder and then grade that downwards. Now, under the current system, it does work the same as the system that we had in place for much of the VFL, say the period from the early 1900s to 1971, where the top two teams have a distinct advantage. Okay, because there really isn't any difference between first and second in terms of the advantage gained. But I reckon in an 18-team competition, fair enough. So your statistical evidence backs up what you're saying, and I have no problems in affording that advantage to the top two teams. Remember, it was brought in because, on a couple of instances, North Melbourne and which other side, row? Fremantle did it twice. Yep. Fremantle, uh, rested players knowing that their position in the eight could not be affected by results in the final round. That didn't mean that they were on top. They were just in such a position that they really couldn't go up or down. And so they rested players coming into the finals. You know what? That ultimately won neither team a premiership. That also doesn't Really, I mean, uh, are they concerned about betting? If so, is the tail wagging the dog? I think so. Are they concerned about the look? Because there's no problem with the look when you give uh, some players who are close to senior selection an opportunity to play in the final round of the year with their team on the verge of finals. (laughs) Believe me, those players will go as hard as possible and give it a red-hot contest. So don't worry about that. In other words, I feel in a way they're impugning the integrity of AFL footballers, saying that the teams of those clubs didn't care about the result. Not true. Not true. They were negotiating the finals as best as possible for themselves. Ultimately, it didn't work out. Best teams still won. It's a a minor correction that needs to be made, but they've done it. And I think your expression is... uh, cracking an almond with a sleeve jammer, something along those lines. Well, walnut, to, but almond will do, yep. 
to yeah, to open the nut, they've been nuts because it's a simple fact, and you've said it, Rowan. Every week in a normal season, a team plays a game of football. A day here, a day there. Those teams can luck, enjoy the luxury of a week off. Most football seasons have a buy in it anyhow. So footballers enjoy and experience one week off. But to have a week off, play, and then another week off, for those teams good enough to win in the first week of the finals, with the advantage being given to the top two teams who play home turf or home state, that's too much. That is, it, it's unnatural for footballers. We don't have a pre-season where a team plays one game in the first week of March and then has two weeks off before the start of the season. Nobody would consider that to be sensible practice. Why? Because footballers need conditioning and they lose it quickly. I think your evidence is incontrovertible. And I think, no, I know that the AFL has made a situation where incredibly the team that wins the first week of the finals out of the top four, those two teams are at a disadvantage. They need to change. They need to accept the numbers. And I am 100% with you, Rowan. Scrap the season ending by end discussion. Yeah, massive overreaction. And I think you make a really good point too about other competitions like the EPL having a, a first past the post, if you like, and no grand final as such. We play all season. You can still, you can have the perfect season and still muck up a grand final. Therefore, I think you've got to maximise every possible advantage that you earn during the season before you get to that sudden death playoff. We've encapsulated all the arguments, really. It's up to the AFL to see sense on this one. Let's see if they do. Rowan, and and, and you you know what, Rowan? Even the mighty Tigers almost stumbled last year. As you said, a slow start had them four goals down roughly at half time against Geelong. It could have been much worse. So yeah, yeah, it could have been. It could have would been. Would that would that have woken that would that have woken them up finally? Well, no, they need to be woken up on this one. Let's see if people pick up the cudgels. All right, that is enough news. We've got two preliminary finals to break down in uh, pretty fulsome detail. Let's do that now. On footyology, wrap around. Friday evening at Adelaide Oval was the first preliminary final. Port Adelaide playing at home, desperately trying to get into their first grand final since 2007, up against the power team in the last few years, the Richmond Football Club. And in a thriller, it was Richmond who prevailed by just six points, a low-scoring tight tussle in the wet. The final scores, Richmond, 6-10-46, defeated Port Adelaide, 6-4-40. Neck and neck, these two sides. In fact, two goals each at quarter time, three goals each at halftime, four goals each at three-quarter time, six goals each at the end. Those extra six scoring shots for Richmond, seeing them home. The goals for the Tigers, two to Martin, two to Lambert, singles to Rewalt and Lynch. For Port Adelaide, two to Rosie, singles to Dersma, Lysette, 
Dixon and Laddams. It was a thriller and uh, very tight from the word go, Fighty. Richmond definitely got off to the better start and might have proved critical just in terms of keeping their noses in front for the bulk of this game. Dustin Martin had the first goal on the board um, and Jack Rewald, good mark from him, uh, sorry, free kick from him to kick his first goal of the evening. The Tigers, two goals up. Port, however, and this would be a bit of a pattern, were able to hit back Connor Rosie. Uh, kicked one off the ground for them, approaching the time on period, brought the difference back to under a kick. And then Xavier Dersma marked about 45 metres out after a pass from Robbie Gray deep into time on to actually give Port the lead by two points going into the first break. Gee, the kids were good early for Port Finey. Dersma had seven touches to the first break. Um, and some younger faces, good for the Tigers too. Noah Bolter, outstanding in that first quarter, neck and neck. Um, and certainly come that first change, you thought this is going to be a very, very close game. Spot on. The contest at that point, really, the, the main factor was the rain had arrived. So we knew, look, these are two professional outfits, strong-bodied Port Adelaide playing at home, very comfortable in front of their home crowd and Richmond, a team that they're not going to be, there's no way they're going to be swept aside in greasy conditions, wet conditions with the ball on the ground. We were in for an arm wrestle and I think that's what we knew at quarter time. I, I don't think anybody could have turned around and said with any justification, Richmond, all Port Adelaide uh, are going to walk away with this one. Dustin Martin started great. And, and of course, he's just such a good footballer. Finals, actually, in any conditions, he's a champion. A any matches, any time of the season. And he got off to a good start. Hadn't seen Tom Lynch yet, but we knew the crowd was on his case early. And that was a very clever goal by Connor Rosie, wasn't it? Because it was... I can't remember who it was who actually had a snap at goal. It was going through, but it had been touched on the way through. And Rosie had the sense of mind of just laying a slipper on it as the ball was sort of cresting the goal line. So quick thinking and, you know, we'd see early in the second quarter, wouldn't we, how quick thinking and natural ability around the goals comes very easily to Connor Rosie. Well, yes, you mentioned the rain. And uh, in the second quarter, uh, that was probably the heaviest the rain got the whole game. You would have thought, and we've talked about this already today, that uh, Richmond are a great wet weather side. And I must admit, I thought, well, gee, the heavier it gets, the more the Tigers are going to pull away. But credit to Port Adelaide. They really showed um, the toughness, uh, both mental and physical, which has been instilled in this side now under Ken Hinckley. And that goes to the kids and also, of course, the mainstays of that team and their solidly built uh, bodies around the ball. None more solidly built than Ollie Wines, who was sensational that first half. He was actually the leading possession winner on the ground come half time with 14 disposals. The power got the first goal uh, of the second term, just two and a half minutes in. Connor Rosie kicking his second with a right foot snap. That put Port seven points up. 
Richmond were able to answer Dusty Martin working himself into a bit of space and marking about 40 metres out, levelled the scores. Um, gee, it's a game of missed opportunities when they're so few and far between, though, and one which sticks in the mind, Fidey. Really unfortunate because he'd been so good to that point. But Connor Rosie uh, got the ball on the boundary line. Beautiful centre of the ball to an unattended Xavier Dersma, who unfortunately dropped a chess mark in a very kickable position, uh, almost point blank range. And that was definitely a chance lost by the power. They went to um, the long break, these two sides locked together, three goals, three. 21 in statistical terms, though, it looked to be a game very much leaning in Port's favour. The inside 50s come half time with 32 to just 22 for the Tigers. Port were dominating the clearances 2013. They had more contested possessions by uh, 14. They had a 25 um, advantage in the uncontested possessions. The only important statistical categories they weren't winning were tackles, uh, marks inside 50, and centre bounce clearances, despite that ruck dominance, were just fractionally Richmond's way. Their leading disposal winner at that stage, Trent Koch and the skipper on 10, Bolton 9, Hawley 9, and Martin 9. So the stars were firing for the Tigers. Uh, Anyone's game at the long break, Finey. What'd you make of the third quarter? Well, just on the second quarter, Rowan, the, that score of three goals, three apiece, that was held for at least half the quarter. So the arm wrestle was well and truly an even one. No score at all for a good half a quarter. We knew we were in for a tight battle. I guess a slight counter to Connor Rosie's drop mark was a similarly uh, pardon me, Conor Rosie's pass to Dersma for a drop mark was a similarly surprising drop by Big Tom Lynch, who had manoeuvred uh, his opponent out of position or a couple of opponents out of position and dropped an absolute sitter. So it couldn't have been more even. 3-3 three, three apiece with a couple of surprising opportunities gone by the wayside. The third quarter was, it really was more of the same, wasn't it? Except at this point, Richmond started to get get the ascendancy through, well, what was the surprising statistic coming into the game. But I remind people that throughout the season, Dion Prestia, the player they call the truck, was absent for most of the year, Coxon for part of the year. So coming into this game, of course, we know that Richmond centre clearances were down the bottom of the uh, rankings and Port Adelaide right up the top of the rankings but Richmond are starting to win the centre clearances and once again it's only a goal apiece a couple of points advantage to the Tigers at three-quarter time you'll go through the actual statistics of the quarter Rowan but I start to get the feeling that this is Port Adelaide slightly outnumbered at the contest slightly disadvantaged in general play or, or slightly being taken uh, to second best in general play. And I've got a sense that Richmond, who were two points up the last two time, last time these two teams met, of course, during the home and away season, failed to score in the last quarter, had a very different mindset. There would have been a 
quiet surge of confidence amongst the Tigers heading into the three-quarter time break. Yeah, there was. They really upped the ante on the tackle count, particularly in the third term. In fact, uh, 12 to 22 tackles the Tigers laid in that third quarter. Uh, Paul won a bit of a rabbit out of the hat to Damien Hardwick, sending Noah Boulder forward. And he had a golden chance to give Richmond a really important edge. Uh, missed the shot badly, unfortunately. That was literally in the last 30 seconds of play. So an opportunity squandered there. They were just two points up at three-quarter time. But, uh, yeah, I was beginning to think the Tigers would prevail. But, again, Port um, wouldn't say quit. They kicked the first goal of the last quarter to Charlie Dixon. Really, the first look he'd had at it. Really good kick from outside 50 metres. But then Kane Lambert, and how often does this happen with Richmond players? He bobbed up with a super six, seven minutes uh, period of play in which he kicked two goals. Um, the first one uh, couldn't have come at a handier time, put the Tigers back in front. Uh, that was uh, just under six minutes in. Richmond by then had won every clearance of the quarter. So that strength was really beginning to kick in. Jaden Short kicked a point. They went four points up. But then... Uh, a controversial, no, I don't think it was controversial. Free kick for deliberate out of bounds from Hamish Hartlett. I think the replay showed it was pretty much hit straight out by the Port defender. Kane Lambert on a very tight angle, threaded an absolute ripper. That gave Richmond a bit of breathing space in the context of a tight game. Ten points. Still Port wouldn't say die. Peter Adams got a free kick uh, being held too high by Nick Vlosten. From about 30 metres out, he converted. Four points the difference now. Still seven and a half minutes left on the clock. We then saw some real drama. Brad Ebert, an incredibly courageous spoil uh, on a marking attempt by Jack Rewalt. That saw him concussed and, as we would subsequently learn, end up becoming the last active play of Brad Ebert in his AFL career. What a courageous note to go out on. Bolton missed an opportunity. Richmond five points up. Jack Rewalt had a set shot with two minutes left to put the game beyond doubt. He missed six points the difference. Port could still force a draw. They attacked again. There were a couple of throw-ins around the wing area in the final minute, but Richmond soaked up that last couple of minutes very, very well. Siren rang. Richmond into their third grand final in four years. Port devastated. Dramatic last 20-odd minutes of footy finding. But brilliantly played by Richmond. Let's be fair, in the cold, hard light of day, Port Adelaide had two shots of goal in that last quarter. The long shot by Dixon, the free kick to Laddams. They really did not press the goals in any meaningful way otherwise. It's not as though they were being stopped on the last line or sprayed a couple on the fall. Richmond really did control that last quarter. Two goals, four. Yes, they won by six points. Yes, both teams kicked identical goals each of the four quarters. But I really think, as you said, Richmond in those last two minutes with that consummate professionalism, Nan Curvis coming to the fore with some brilliant body positioning and marks in defence, shut the door firmly on Port Adelaide at the end of that game. If you can win by... Six points under those circumstances, 
I certainly you, you can't win comfortably because the opposition's only one smart piece of play away, one wicked bounce for the defence away from levelling the affair. But if you can control what you can control perfectly, then Richmond did that and ultimately won that game with, I think most people saying on the night, they were the right winners. Port, by the end, were trying to steal that game off them. And what can you say about Port Adelaide? Their effort was valiant. Their their youngsters... Oh, look, Zach Butters didn't have a great game, but you said quite rightly, Dersmer and Rosie stood up. They've got a midfield that, I guess, coming into the season, there were some question marks. I thought Rockcliffe had a great year, not a great night. Wines, a wonderful season. Remember, start of the year, we didn't know how fit he was. And Travis Boak, quite rightly, uh, All-Australian and one of the best in the comp. He's really, I think, had a, a career that has gone partially unnoticed, maybe by us Victorians, certainly not by South Australians. They hold their head high, but the right team won with the sort of level-headedness, Rowan, that makes them hard to tip against in a grand final. Yep, indeed. Very well summed up. Richmond into their third grand final in four years and going, of course, for a three, not a three-peat, but three flags in that four-year period would be a magnificent achievement. Port Adelaide, they will definitely come again. That was the first of the two preliminary finals. Let's talk about Saturday night. Saturday night at the Gabba, the second preliminary final before a crowd of 29,500. It was Brisbane v Geelong, and it was the Cats emerging with, in the end, a very convincing 40-point win. The final scores, Geelong, 11 goals, 16, 82, defeating Brisbane, 6-6-42. The margin, 40 points. The goal kickers for the victors, three goals to Gary Rowan, two to Hawkins, two to Ablett, singles to Parfit, Henry, Myers and Tui. For Brisbane, Cameron, two goals, Neil, two goals. The only other goal kickers, singles to both Hipwood and Rayner. Well, Finey, Geelong, you often get a feel with the Cats pretty early in a game and they looked up for the contest. They uh, definitely jumped out of the blocks. It was Brisbane who scored the first goal of the evening to Charlie Cameron, but that was answered pretty quickly by Brandon Parfit. It was terrific early for the Cats. Hawkins looked dangerous from the word go. He had his first on the board, after which the Cats had racked up nine inside 50s to just three, were almost double Brisbane for contested ball, and winning it on the outside to a very healthy edge in uncontested ball. Uh, They were up for the fight, and you knew then, even though Charlie Cameron kicked his second to bring the gap back to just four points a quarter time, that the Lions were going to have a hell of a battle on their hands to make it to their first grand final for 16 years. Yeah, look, uh, Rowan, you said quite rightly, Geelong were on. uh, On the uh, reverse side of that coin, Sort of understandable, but I guess in their second final series, a little bit disappointing that Brisbane seemed to be nervous. They were not the Brisbane Lions that, at their best, were 
irresistible throughout this season and last season as well. Charlie Cameron had started well, but unfortunately, he was all we were seeing in the forward line. Harris Andrews handled the ball beautifully a couple of times, but he also made a couple of uncharacteristic errors. And I just, you know, Lockie Neal, another slow start, much like in the final against Richmond when he didn't get a possession in the first quarter. This time, quizzically, it seemed as though both he and Selwood, who were playing on each other for most of that first quarter, were running each other away from the ball because Selwood barely touched it at all in the first quarter as well. It certainly at quarter time was quite apparent that Geelong had settled into this make or break final much better than their home ground opponents, Brisbane. And the alarm bells probably sounding even louder, I think for the home side by uh, just over six minutes into the second quarter, by which time the Cats had another two goals. Hawkins second coming after a lovely little pass from Gary Ablett, who was looking very, very dangerous indeed. Uh, Definitely had that. I'm not going to let this be the final game of my career look about him. And then Gary Rowan, we know how dangerous he can be. Beautiful goal from him where he got beaten initially in a marking contest, but won the ball on the ground, wheeled onto his right foot away from Brandon Stasevich and bounced one through from a fair distance out. That put the Cats 17 points up, and you were thinking, oh boy, they are in big trouble. Brisbane hit back, to their credit, uh, a goal first of all to Eric Hipwood, a right foot snap. After a fair to say uh, Sam Menegola probably should have been paid a free kick after being shoved off the ball, uh, but I think it was Zach Bailey. But Hipwood goal, that made the difference 11 points. Lockie Neal. Uh, critical goal just on the halftime siren from, uh, gee, a long way out on the run, probably 60 metres when he let go. And his long bomb bounced all the way through, reducing the Cats' halftime lead to just six points. Um, sorry, five points. Four goals, eight, the Cats at halftime. Could have been further in front when you look at that scoreline. Brisbane, four goals, three. Daniel Rich. Uh, pretty decent for Geelong off halfback. Was he going to be defensive enough on Gary Ablett? Well, we'd know the answer to that soon enough. Hugh McCluggage, pretty good. Big second quarter from Lockie Neal with 10 disposals. So they were plugging away. Uh, Geelong still definitely with the edge in general play. Perhaps the Lions lucky to be that close at halftime, Finey. Yeah, sorry, Brisbane fans, but Part of the reason you were that close was because in the second quarter, you received eight free kicks. Geelong received one. And it's not the disparity that's the problem. It was the free kicks that was the problem. That was a free kick to Menegola. End story. Shouldn't have resulted in a goal. And, gee, there was a passage of play that resulted in a free kick to Zorko that also was highly questionable. Zorko missing from... 20 metres out on a slight angle, that would become a problem uh, that continued in the second half for Brisbane there. Profligate nature in front of goal coming back to bite them on the backside because really, at this point, they are playing catch-up football, aren't they, Roman? Spot on. Lockie Neal is playing well, but Zorko is not. Jared Lyons, normally prolific in the middle, is not getting his hands on the ball and something is becoming quite apparent they can't play Oscar McInerney up forward 
and he's a handy forward because he can mark and bring the ball to ground because Stefan Martin is a bust in the ruck. I think McStay at this point has not touched the ball either. Hipwood, yes, he kicked a nice goal, maybe two or three possessions. The alarm bells ringing left, right and centre because Geelong's forward line is functioning and up the other end, the same can't be said for the Lions. No, true. And uh, again, uh, similar pattern really at the start of the third term. Jack Henry crept forward, took a really good mark, uh, about 45 metres out, really strong mark, and promptly booted his first goal of the season. Very timely getting on the board for him. That restored the Cats' two-goal lead. Gary Ablett uh, looking even more ominous. Well, this was his big moment, the third term. Uh, A very questionable handball. In fact, more than questionable. An absolutely blatant throw from Paddy Dangerfield to Ablett. But a clever little snap from close range. That made it 16 points the difference about midway through the term. Cam Rayner got a steadier for Brisbane after a nice pass from Neil. He let that go from outside 50 metres. Brought it back to 10 points. But, and it was a very big but, one of the quickest replies to a goal I think I've ever seen. In fact, I recorded Rayner's goal. Uh, coming with six minutes, 44 seconds left of play. By the time the next goal was scored, and it was Abbott's second of the quarter, a long bomb on the run from outside 50, there were six minutes, 28 seconds left to play. So just 16 seconds of play elapsing from Rainers getting the all clear to Abbott, restoring Geelong's lead to 16 points. He was fantastic in that third quarter. And the Cats... Uh, their capacity to score from stoppages. At that stage, five goals, four they'd kicked from stoppages during the evening to Brisbane's one goal, one. That physical strength, again, coming to play. Another critical moment for Brisbane, Eric Hipwood, uh, an absolute gimme of the goal, pretty much directly in front, 30 metres out, missed badly. And you could really feel the air go out of Brisbane's tyres at that point. Uh, McLuggage battling on well, Lockie Neal playing well, Daniel Rich picking up plenty of touches, but really let Ablett off the chain in that quarter in very costly fashion. Ablett, two goals of the Cats, three for the term. It was the decisive period of play for the game. So we got to three-quarter time, the Cats leading by three goals. It was going to take something pretty special to turn things around, even more so, Finey, when again... The Cats got out of the blocks at the start of the last quarter. Goal to Grian Myers, just over a minute into that final term. And he's a good example of one of the lesser lights of the Geelong side. Made some bad mistakes early on, but really worked himself into the game and became an important player for them. That made the lead 24 points. Again, Lockie Neal trying in vain to keep his side alive. Good goal from him, outside 50. 18 points the difference again. Probably the Fatal moment for Brisbane, if you like. Ryan Lester took a mark, got a 50. Lockie Henderson kicking the ball away for Geelong stupidly. Penalised 50, took Lester to within probably 25 metres a goal. Shocking miss from him. Uh, So the margin remained three goals. And only uh, a couple of minutes later, back out to four goals, thanks to Zach Tui, who'd been shifted forward. And really, that even with nine minutes left on the clock, you just felt game over. And it really was game over. Brisbane's effort visibly wilted 
And it was Gary Rowan who kicked the final two goals of the game, finally, to give the Cats, in the end, a margin, probably not reflective of the game. I'm not sure they were 40 points a better side than Brisbane. Little blowout in the last five or 10 minutes there. But they were certainly, clearly, the better side on the evening. Um, they won all the major statistical categories. Inside 50s in the end, 32 to 50. So a massive edge there. Mitch Duncan, 22 disposals. Menegola and Stewart, 19 each. Dangerfield Guthrie, 17. Ablett, not amongst the leading goal, um, possession winners, but so crucial to the result with his two goals and the goals he set up. And the Cats finally beating the preliminary final curse. They'd lost their previous four preliminary finals win on the fifth attempt into their first grand final since 2011. So what do you make of how it played out, Finey? Well, I, first of all, I agree with you 100%. 40 points, that's a bit of a blowout margin in a final. Not really indicative of the game because, yes, Brisbane were hanging on by their Lions clause for most of the game, but it was that sort of three-goal margin that uh, was basically separating the teams for most of the game. You know what? Not not dissimilar in a way to the Richmond-St Kilda final, which in the end, clearly the right team won. And the opposition did get within three goals. And I think it, it had that same feel about it. But it was that third quarter where Geelong, again, didn't quite take numerical advantage of what they were creating on the ground. But I think psychologically, they absolutely put a sword through the Lions. How about the ruck work of Hawkins in the forward line? Because there were a number of forward line boundary throw-ins. McInerney, for some reason, could not work himself to the front of the contest. He was being monstered by somebody clearly shorter, but far stronger, heavier. And Hawkins, grabbing the ball out of the ruck, was creating opportunities that might not have resulted in goals, but morally, gee, if your first ruckman, Stefan Martin, can't get a touch and the second ruckman is being moved aside and the ball being grabbed out of the ruck by your opponent's second choice or third choice ruckman, well, you're starting to feel pretty sore and sorry for yourself. And I think that's how Brisbane felt. Ablett, two goals, could have been a third. And Geelong starting to, in that quarter, look like they're in the position to monster the Lions. Yes, the hip would miss bad. Last quarter, the Ryan Lester missed bad. And we should say what a great game Lester played because Dangerfield played forward for most of the game and Lester beat him fair and square. Dangerfield, no goals, no behinds. 17 possessions. Some of those running in the midfield. I thought Ryan Lester was great. But in the end, Geelong... Ran away with the game. A couple of goals by Gary Rowan. Interesting that he takes a shot after the siren. <laughs> I don't know whether that's whether you need to necessarily. Oh, well, I remember uh, Max Rook at the end of the 2009 grand final. Of course I do. Uh, thanks. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, but yeah, does he? Do, do, does the final margin reflect the game? No, but maybe yes in that. If it says that only one team was ever going to win, then I'm comfortable with the margin. Yeah, look, it was a, a really strong performance by them. But ditto Brisbane uh, to what we said to Port Adelaide. Look, disappointing. 
It's two finals campaigns now that have ended short of the mark, but they took a step forward. They won a final this year. They got to the second last rather than uh, third last weekend of a season. They are a side definitely on the rise. We'll be seeing and hearing a lot more of the Brisbane Lions over the next few years, Geelong through to another grand final. That is our two preliminary finals wrapped up, but I did say we owe Brisbane and Port Adelaide uh, in home and away terms, the two best teams of 2020. We owe them a decent analysis of what have been pretty good season campaigns, Finey. Let's do that now. On Footyology, wrap around. All right, let's talk first about the team which officially finishes fourth on the ladder, of course, finished the home and away round second, won the qualifying final, lost the preliminary final. I'm talking about Brisbane. Uh, they end the season with 15 wins, four losses, pretty good percentage, 124.89%. In terms of offensive and defensive capabilities, they were ranked third for points scored in 2020. Not so strong defensively, although still respectable. They finished seventh for fewest points conceded. Another very, very strong season from Chris Fagan's team. Finey, what do you make of their efforts this season? Well, you know that I I like to look at a couple of statistics. One is uh, the number of key players out. For the second year in a row, their uh, fitness regime, their medical team, we're on top of things. Only Stefan Martin with 11 games on the sidelines and were all of them as a result of injury. I'm not even sure of that. Was a player from the preliminary final, at least, not available for a anything more than three games. So well done on their medical team. They had Charlie Cameron with 31 goals, Eric Hipwood with 23. Now, here's the problem. We know it, don't we? Accuracy in front of goal. McGluggage, 8.21. Lions, 4 goals, 10. Zorko, 9.15. Berry, 7 goals, 10. McCarthy, 15.16. Eric Hipwood finished with 24 goals, 19. But dare I say, there would have been quite a few sprayed on the full, falling short or going in every which direction from the poor old Eric Hipwood. Moving forward, Brisbane have got a lot going for them. They got that wonderful defense or the, that, that wonderful defensive general in Harris Andrews. He's a beauty. You build great defenses around a player like that. The midfield, it's got a heck of a future. McLeod's really came on this season. Uh, Neil, Lockie Neil, standout season. Zorko up and down, I must say. But we know what he's best damaging. He'd actually want a better year next year. Jared Lyons, rock solid and consistent. The forward line, dangerous, but maybe because of that inaccuracy, not quite as effective as it could be. I guess there's going to be a question mark on, say, a McStay. Does he do enough? We know he's a good foil. But in the end, he's only kicked 11 goals for the season. That's not enough for a key forward or a, a, a permanent forward anyhow. So Joe Danaher, if the deal done is done with Essendon, and we assume it will be, he could be the missing piece of the puzzle. Really could be. If he stands up, 
suddenly you've got a forward line that makes a whole lot more sense. Hipwood gets the second best tall defender. Cameron gets something to work off every time the ball goes long because either Danaher marks it or it comes to ground. You know what? It could be that simple to take them all the way to the dais. Yeah, look, they're uh, they're definitely on the way up. I I, th- I think the improvements have only got to be marginal. There's no glaring weakness about them, is there? Just having a look at the, is there a common theme recur- recurring through their defeats? Well, they only had four of them, so it's pretty hard to see. However, um, three of them were to the grand finalists. So what does that say? It says that to me, there's still probably a bit of a a, a gap between them and the two sides, which will fight out the grand final. How do they close that gap? I think it's you know, two qualities that you can't really hurry. And they are physical strength and experience in terms of games played. And you talked about some of those brilliant young players. We know how good they are. I think they will improve. They will get stronger. They will make fewer mistakes with more games under their belts. And when you get to this stage of the developmental equation, as they have done, that's all it's about, really. Um, And I know that can be a frustrating process for some young sides because it feels like, well, we're there. Why, Why aren't we striking yet? But, you know, give it time. They've had two cracks at final series. Geelong on this score, I think, will be a good example to the likes of Port Adelaide and Brisbane because Geelong has just been going again and going again and going again and coming up short but still picking themselves up off the canvas for another crack at it. And look, it's finally paid off. They've, they've had 14 seasons of sustained effort at winning premierships. What have they got out of it? One premiership and, what, five preliminary final attempts. It's taken them the fifth attempt to even get back to the chance of winning a premiership. So it's about durability, I think, as much as talent and as about structure. You've got to have the mental resolve to be able to uh, steal yourself and just go campaign after campaign. That comes with experience. It comes with physical conditioning as well. They were definitely outstrengthed by Geelong last night. I think the more footy some of these young guys like McLuggage, et cetera, get into their bodies, the less likely that is to happen. And they are going to be a contender for a long, long time. Still very much one of the youngest and least experienced lists in the competition. And credit again to Chris Fagan. What a wonderful addition to the coaching ranks he's been. All right, that is our look at Brisbane. Let's have a look now at the side officially finishing third on the ladder, despite topping the um, ladder after the home and away rounds. Just an interesting addendum to that too, Finey. And I meant to say this in our discussion about the pre-finals buy. Uh, that this year makes it three years that the minor premier has failed to even reach the grand final, and that has never before happened in the history of the game. So uh, there might be a few interesting takeaways from that. In this case, it was and, unf- and Rowan, have we just as addendums, we were alerted on our footyology final siren program to the fact that it's the first time in history the third meet fourth at the end of the home and away season in a grand final I think that might be right correct I meant to look that up and didn't have time but every chance because we're only effectively talking about the last 40 years there however Port Adelaide good enough to stay on top of the ladder the entire season magnificent effort from them to come from outside the final eight to such a strong 
regular season. They end up third with 15 wins, four losses, and uh, a terrific percentage, 136.36. And strong all over the ground. In terms of points scored, they finished second only to Geelong. Defensively, there was no peer to the power. They conceded the fewest points of any team during the home and away rounds in 2020. They had a strong and experienced midfield. They had that wonderful troop of kids who were so exciting. They had a great season out of Charlie Dixon, rewarded with All-Australian selection and still the most underrated defensive unit in the competition. They were terrific all across the ground, Finey, and very, very well coached by Ken Hinckley. It was a wonderful year by the power. What do you make of it? Uh, you can't deny it. It was a great year within a goal away from a grand final and the opportunity to really go from pillar to post as the top team in the competition. Uh, they, like Brisbane, fared very well in the medical room. Only the retiring Brad Ebert with five games missed was a player who missed more than three games of note. Their goal kicking is a bit lopsided though. And here there should be an alarm bell. Dixon, excellent return, 34 goals, 21. Their next best goal kicker, Robbie Gray with 15. Boy, they are reliant on Dixon. Westhoff is retiring. Georgiadis was uh, made his AFL debut and shows a great deal of promise. But if Dixon was to go down, you would not say in 2021 necessarily that Georgiadis is ready to, uh, you know, take the responsibility of being the sole key big target up forward. I do think they need a foil. They got a result out of Laddams and Lysette in terms of one of the big ruckmen going forward. But that, to me, is not a reliable second tall forward. And that's echoed with the um, goal kicking because they were not, neither of them kicked more than 10 goals. Uh, Robbie Gray, 15 goals, six. Butters, 11-5. Motlop, 13-2. They've got some dead-eyed dicks. Even Dixon with 34-21. So, unlike Brisbane, they take their opportunities in front of goal. These signs are great for Port Adelaide if I, I do believe they need some cover for Dixon or support for Dixon. Beyond that, what a backline. We constantly use the word underrated. I think that needs now to be replaced with excellent. Just know that when on song, or when on when the ensemble is together, which is always Clory, Jonas and Houston are great operators. And really only Geelong was able to exploit that in the home and away season, but that was quickly addressed in the first final. Darcy Byrne-Jones, a breakout year, or was it? I don't know. I think he's been great ever since he pulled on his boots. He's never been dropped. Anyhow, he was rewarded with all Australian selection. Hamish Hartlett, able to play consistent football, was fantastic. So you've got a backline that works, a midfield that, I think surpassed expectations, given that we didn't know how fit Ollie Wines was heading into the season. Rockliffe proved more than just a numbers man. Those two ruckmen did well in the ruck. The P in the pod was certainly Travis Boat. But the excitement is around those youngsters. Rosie's a talent. Butters, a great season. Tough as all get-out butters and quite hard at it. Opposition will need to watch out for him as he gets a bigger body. 
Speaking of bigger bodies, let's not forget Powell Pepper's importance. He paves the way for a lot of good football for Port Adelaide. Dersma, wonderful. I, I only note one weakness, and that is maybe the over-reliance on Dixon. We're going to see a lot of Port Adelaide at the top end of the ladder for many years to come. Yeah, agree on all those points. Um, certainly in structural terms, the only weakness, I think, is that lack of key forward support for Dixon. Um, they're surely going to have a crack at whatever key forward they can prize from another club's uh, clutches because it's certainly needed for Charlie. And my other cautionary note for them involves Dixon. It would be about the age at the top end of the list. This year they had seven players 30 years of age or older. Uh, we know two of them already bidding farewell to AFL footy, that is Justin Westhoff and now Brad Ebert as well, uh, still getting fantastic returns out of Robbie Gray, out of Travis Boke, out of Charlie Dixon, out of Hamish Hartlett. All terrific this year, but as we've seen so many times, it can fall away quickly once players pass the age of 30. So something they need to keep an eye on, need to keep pushing those younger blokes through the bottom end of the list. And we've seen gradual improvement from the likes of Carl Amon too. I'm a rep for this guy. I think he's hung around a while, but definitely has come on a, a big step in the last two seasons. So they're the sort of blokes they've got to keep pushing uh, to remain a contender. But I'm confident they can. It was a wonderful season by the power. Shouldn't be undersold, despite the fact they won't be playing off for a premiership next Saturday. We're going to see and hear, like Brisbane, plenty more of Port Adelaide in 2021 and beyond. Aim on to that. Oh, very good. That is our two beaten preliminary finalist seasons reviewed. And that is the end of this episode of the Footyology podcast. Hope everyone has a great grand final week. Uh, we've got the Brownlow medal happening on Sunday night, of course, just a few hours from now. And if you're wondering why we haven't talked about it, that's why we want this to remain current. So congratulations to whoever oh, won. I, th I, thought, I thought you were going to say we, we know the winner. We just didn't want to. It's a spoiler no, no. alert. I'm gonna, well, I'm, I'm speaking past it. Congratulations, whoever won the uh, 2020 Brownlow. And congratulations, too, to all the stunning wags and the magnificent attire they wore, because we all know that's all anyone cares about on Brownlow Meadow, Medal Night. No, seriously, have a great week. Uh, quick plug for our sponsors, Finey, if you please. Sure, just on the Brownlow, we should have done what the Simpsons did at Camp Krusty when uh, they just inserted the voice and it goes, uh, you know, Krusty the Clown goes, your counsellor will be Mr Black. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. in fact, that would have worked for one of the Brownlow medalists. All right, let's, let's do it. Let's do yeah. it with who we all think is going to... Uh, win tonight i you you insert the voice yeah uh so yeah look um fantastic season uh his club was great but this guy was sensational too what a season he's had um this is like sarah jones on fox i can just come off with a string of um praise <laughs> adjectives he's been magnificent he's been a competitor he's definitely been one of the highlights of season 2020 and uh, well done on winning that Brownlow medal to Tom Bell Chambers. <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> All right, quickly plug our sponsors. We're going to go. <laughs> uh, insert no name here. Other, actually, you can do this one. The best burger in Australia is available at Andrews Hamburgers. <laughs> 144. You don't need to insert it. We know the winner there. That is a spoiler alert that uh, we. It's not a spoiler alert. Everybody knows it. Andrews Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. You want a Hang great on, Fonny. I want you to insert this. If you want a great house and great renovations, you must visit none other than... West Point Properties, Nick Spartels. Uh, that was too smooth. I wanted a robotic white horse. All right. <laughs> They're great sponsors. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Please, if you can support us, uh, cough up all your booty at the um, ACAST supporter page or at our Patreon page, easily found. There's links all over the place. Um, got some great content coming up on the website this week, including a special about a fantastic new perspective on the famous 1970 grand final. I can't tell you how excited I am about this piece. I've seen the vision. I've got great stills out of it and a great story written by Shannon Gill. Look out for that. It'll be going up online at footyology.com.au about 2 p.m. Monday afternoon. It's a cracker. We'll have great content all week, so please keep visiting the website. We'll be back with our grand final preview podcast on Thursday morning. Until then, enjoy your week. 